Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Irregular Warfare podcast. My name is Shauna Sinnott, and I am the co-director of the Irregular Warfare Initiative. Before we begin today's episode on the topic of cyberspace and irregular warfare, we want to highlight that applications are now open for the Irregular Warfare Initiative's 2022 Non-Resident Fellowship. Non-Resident Fellows will play a key role in contributing written content on irregular warfare, driving public discourse, and bridging the gap between scholars and practitioners in the IW space. We are looking for a cohort that represents a variety of backgrounds and experiences. So whether you are an academic, a practitioner in the interagency or joint force, or an international applicant, we look forward to receiving your application. Please engage with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook for a link to the form, which will close to applications on 3 December 2021. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. This is an operational domain in which we do a set of very traditional functions. We maneuver, we conduct defensive operations, we do reconnaissance, we do attacks, we do a whole wide range, we do influence activities. I think the way people understood cyber initially was just kind of incorrect. It does take time and coordination. And I think that people were like, oh, well, I thought this was Magic Pixie Dust. This is not Magic Pixie Dust. Well, I don't need to use it then. Like, I'll just go back and drop a JDAM on it. Like, I know exactly how to plan that. I know exactly what the uncertainty term is of that. Welcome to episode 40 of the Irregular Warfare Podcast. I am Shauna Sinnott, and I will be your host today, along with Abigail Gage. Today's episode considers the role of cyberspace as a domain of regular and irregular warfare, from the counterterrorism fight in the post-9-11 era to the great power conflict of today. We open today's episode by establishing the intersection of cyber and irregular warfare. Our guests explain how the United States leverages cyberspace to achieve effects, from the tactical to the strategic levels, drawing on the experience of Joint Task Force Ares to illustrate how cyber activity was effectively executed in the fight against the Islamic State. They go on to apply these lessons to the contemporary security environment. Dr. Jacqueline Schneider is a Hoover Fellow at Stanford University, former senior policy advisor with the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and a reservist currently assigned to Space Systems Command. Admiral Mike Rogers retired from the U.S. Navy in 2018 after nearly 37 years of naval service, rising to the rank of four-star admiral. He culminated his career with a four-year tour as Commander, United States Cyber Command, and Director, National Security Agency. You are listening to the Irregular Warfare Podcast, a joint production of the Princeton Empirical Studies of Conflict Project and the Modern War Institute at West Point dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and practitioners to support the community of irregular warfare professionals. Here's our conversation with Mike and Jackie. All right, Admiral Mike Rogers, Dr. Jackie Schneider, welcome to the Irregular Warfare Podcast. Abigail and I are thrilled to have you here today to talk about cyber. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, excited to be here. So we'd like to start by doing some scene setting. Um, where cyber operations fit into our understanding of both irregular warfare and in just the general national security space. So, Mike, if you could start, um, how should we contextualize cyber within our understanding of the current security environment, particularly as we're, we're talking about IW? Right. Well, first to me, I, I find irregular warfare doctrinally and definition from a definition perspective. I do not like the way we refer to it. I mean, go back in time. We really, as a military DOD, in the U.S. at least, started talking about the concept of irregular warfare in the late 1990s. And then in the aftermath of 9-11, it really came to the fore as we were trying to ask ourselves. So we created a military at that time, let's say circa 2001. We created a military that was largely focused and optimized for a conflict with the Soviet Union, which we believed, if it went military, was going to be very traditional in the sense of large maneuver elements with a strong physical dimension to it, operating in very traditional domains. We find ourselves in post 9-11 and we're trying to figure out, so what's the context that helps us conceptualize the world we find ourselves in now? where it's not about head-to-head -head confrontation between large, conventional, kinetic kinds of capabilities, and as much more about how are we going to apply our skills, our capabilities, and our resources of military 
And when we're focused on the questions of legitimacy and influence with respect to populations, much more closely aligned to the coin or the counterinsurgency arena. The reason why I find it a little challenging with cyber is, so if we think IW, we tend to focus on legitimacy and influencing the population. And for me, I'm going, cyber is elements within that. But on the other hand, cyber has a much broader set of applications to include much more conventional warfare, if you will, just using non-traditional means. And Jackie, I'm sure she has a perspective. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's especially interesting from your point of view, because at the time that you were in command, um, there was, uh, and I think this is really important for people to understand the evolution of the way the U.S. thinks about cyber operations, is that cyber command at that time was a sub-unified command under strategic command. So on one hand, you have a group of military officers that really thinks of cyber operations as something that comes before conflict, that is this thing that looks like a regular warfare. But at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think you had an entirely different narrative coming from strategic command, which was that cyber was strategic and different and, you know, in the same bin of weapons as nuclear weapons. And I think the inability to put cyber in existing bins and analogies was a real difficulty as senior policymakers were trying to figure out what was the right and most appropriate way to use cyber operations. Because at least, you know, in the Obama era, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the perception, at least from the outside, was that there was a significant amount of restraint coming from the Obama administration when it came to the use of cyber operations. So they weren't really thinking of cyber operations as irregular warfare or this thing that could occur prior to conflict. They thought of it in the same bin as strategic weapons, which would create large-scale strategic effects, which therefore should be like relatively restrained and only held at the highest levels. And I, I thought that that actually caused a lot of problems when it came to experimentation and thinking about the integration of cyber operations both in these like early stages of conflict, but also thinking for like, okay, we can use this in this kind of influence way and within um, asymmetric conflict, but also kind of how do we integrate it into uh, our, our more standardized war plans when we're thinking about kind of competitors that look more like near peer competitors. And I think like the, the difficulty in finding an analogy that would fit for cyberspace has really, I think, at least in those initial years, really stunted kind of the evolution and innovation when it came to cyberspace. I think you're largely right. I'm going to disagree in one segment. While I believe that that's true, boy, I, man, I was so frustrated at times with, you know, why is this? You view this almost as a nuclear weapon. I kept arguing, look at the way our competition slash adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Iranians, look at the way they're using cyber. They don't view this as a nuclear weapon. Why are we self-restraining ourselves here? Our competitors view cyber as a capability which brings less risk and offers them a greater range of potential opportunities and options. And yet we are at the opposite end of the spectrum. Our leadership believed that cyber was escalatory, highly risky, and therefore should be viewed somewhat like nuclear weapons. And the only way in the end we were able to change minds, which was interesting to me, I thought, so how do I turn the bureaucracy against itself, so to speak? And the, the solution we came up with within the team was, I said, guys, we need to use the CT fight to show the tactical implications and capabilities of just what we can do. And it was funny. While they were uncomfortable, you know, in many ways, given that strategic concern, when we started talking about let's use the CT fight as a bit of a laboratory to highlight what we can and cannot do, as well as gain a sense for how do you command and control, delegation of authorities, execution of activities, deconfliction between operations and intelligence. I said, look, we can flesh all of that out using ISIS, for example, as a target. I think that this is a really good place to, to take one step back and baseline what these cyber operations are. So I would, I'd love, Jackie, if you'd go first, just talk a little bit about how cyberspace operations create advantages for the United States national security mission and how it can enhance our overall national security. Well, I think sometimes it's useful to think about like what are cyber operations. So back in the day when I was a reservist working for Admiral Rogers in the J5, they were developing this thing that was the joint publication that basically um, defined what cyber operations were. 
And if any of you have ever worked with doctrine writers, oh, they're just awful <laughs> to work with. Um, they're so particular <laughs> about the words that you use, but not. We mean like- no offense to any. Doctrine writers listening to the podcast today. (laughs) They know who they are. I mean, not in like a, oh, the English language sense of way, but like the way in which words are used in doctrine is extremely, extremely deliberate. So I remember starting work um, in Cyber Command as a reservist, but also as a PhD student. And I was working on cyber and I kept saying cyber, cyber, cyber. And oh my gosh, the doctrine writers, it was like, it was like flames coming out of their head because you are never allowed to use cyber as a noun on its own. It is an adjective that is modifying a noun. And so, but I think that's actually like, it drove me slightly crazy, but actually it helps to understand when we think about cyber. So cyber operations, I think is a nice way to talk about like the noun, which is cyber. And if you think about cyber operations, there may be like two giant bins and that's cyber offense and cyber defense. And, and, and that's, those are really, really big bins, but like underneath cyber defense are a series of kind of tactical things that you do in cyber defense. And then under cyber offense, there's, you know, cyber attacks, but then there are these other things like um, cyber network exploitation, cyber spying, right? Like, or um, cyber enabled information operations, which is maybe it has an element of cyber attack because you're getting an access, right? Or you're exploiting access to put information out, but the actual kind of information itself is not necessarily an attack. And so the vast majority of what we see today is more on the cyber defense or the cyber network exploitation. For it to become an actual cyber attack, it has to manipulate information or delete information, or block your access to information, or on like the very, very, very rare cases, actually create physical effects, physical manifestations of the loss of data. Almost everything that happens nowadays is kind of on the cyber virtual, the cyber spying side of the house. But I think this distinction between kind of cyber attacks versus cyber espionage, it's still something that is really murky. Now, the DOD, I mean, if people are like kind of doctrine geeks, you can look at how the Department of Defense defines these things. And I think they're very deliberate about their definitions of what each of these things are, because then these definitions have implications for what the U.S. thinks is responsible or legal in terms of kind of who does them, and then what is appropriate in in how we respond to them. But if you look at kind of just public conversation about cyber operations, they lump a lot of things in cyber attacks that the U.S. would not really kind of call a cyber attack. This is actually, I've been surprised how big the difference is here between the information technology community and the more national security community here. They really want to call everything a cyber attack and the national security community is a little more worried about when you frame something as a cyber attack, what are the um, legal ramifications? What are the ramifications for big theories of deterrence and kind of more foreign policy and national security? So I think, look, to try to help, because certainly in my time, I always thought one of my jobs, and I thought of the team at Cyber Command and elsewhere, part of our job was to be educators and evangelists to try to help people understand. So what are we talking about? You know, so the first thing I always started with was, look, Cyber is an operational domain, much as the air, the space, land, with a few differences. Number one, it's man-made. It's the one domain that is man-made. But like any operational domain, it has key terrain. It actually has a physical aspect to it. I reminded people, look, every single IP address or server we're going after where anywhere in the world has a physical manifestation. There is a physical and a virtual component to this, guys, and we've got to think in both dimensions if we're really going to optimize what we're going to do here. I also thought the idea of a domain within the DOD arena, I thought was powerful because my view was, look, this is an operational domain in which we do a set of very traditional functions. We maneuver. We conduct defensive operations. We do reconnaissance. We do attacks, if you will. We'll talk about that in a minute. We do a whole wide range. We do influence activities. Cyber is a tool to enable us to do a wide spectrum of things. It's not just, well, it's just about the defensive side or it's all about attacks. And, you know, Jackie may remember, but I told everybody during my time at Cyber Command, you guys got to be really measured about the way you use the word attack. There is a very precise legal definition under the law of armed conflict with respect to this. 
let's be very specific and very, very measured in the terminology that we use to describe this activity. One other point I would make to something that Jackie said, which I, I, I thought great context for everybody. You also need to think about cyber activities more than just a data or informational range. I said, look, we could use cyber as a tool to manipulate data. We can use cyber as a tool to manipulate infrastructure through software, so to speak. We can use our capabilities in cyber to create physical impact. We can degrade, deny, destroy. And I always thought to myself, guys, if we're not careful, we're really going to limit ourselves conceptually. Because remember what doctrine is. Doctrine is designed to help us understand and conceptualize both the context of where we operate in, but also how we operate and how we apply all of these tools and capabilities that the DOD develops. Hey, how do you employ them? How are they best considered? How do we put them in a context that we understand? What's the right conceptual framework and the legal framework that we need to know? That is the value of doctrine. The challenge gets to be you can't let doctrine end up being a straitjacket that prohibits evolution, learning, and the idea that particularly in an area like cyber where the rate of change is so high, guys, look, what we're writing today, two or three years from now, we're going to look back and go, you know, it fit a time and place, but it doesn't necessarily reflect where we are. I just think that's the nature of this arena, if you will. I feel like that's spoken as a true Navy man. The Navy, just <laughs> doctrine in the Navy is like, meh, uh, the Army, you know, you write that doctrine, that is it. <laughs> but then we don't follow it because our enemy wouldn't know what we're going to do. I want to take this idea of cyber is ever changing and, and fast paced, but to me, there's a bit of a dichotomy in cyber that it is very fast paced and things change rapidly, but the missions themselves can take a very long time to develop. And Hollywood has given us this idea that you can type a couple buttons and the hacker is in. I never thought from an execution standpoint, I don't like the phrase long-term. The phrase I used exactly what I told the secretary, for example, when he told me Geez, December, literally three days before Christmas. I think this is like December the 21st, 2015. Secretary Carter says to me, at a, we're doing the final update on the global ISIS fight before Christmas. So it's the CENTCOM commander. It's the special operations commander. It's myself. And we're briefing him on what we're doing, both collaboratively as well as individually on the in the fight against ISIS, really. And he starts talking to me about, hey, you got to show me what cyber can do. And I said, okay, sir, let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, this is not like I have a red button on my desk and I'm just going to press the red button. I wish I could tell you we can generate capability and specific targeted effects in a matter of minutes or hours, but without preparation, that is highly unlikely. The more relevant scenario is generally we are talking, depending on what you want us to do, days to weeks to months. Now, I said, sir, that is not unlike the conventional world. How long does it take you to prep, to move forces, to do reconnaissance, to execute intelligence and insight activities? How long does it take us in the department to set up for protracted campaigns or kinetic fights? Sir, you don't do that in hours. You generally do that days, weeks, months. Cyber in many ways is the same kind of thing. And just as you're used to this idea of Hey, it's going to take me six months to get enough capacity and capability into the Middle East, for example, to execute a major sustained operation. Sir, cyber has many of the same attributes. We just can't achieve the level of specificity if you only give us hours and days. That, that's just not likely to generate your outcome. The other point I try to make is the other reason why you want to be very careful from a time point is precision is everything in cyber. If we are not precise, the second and third impacts we are going to have can be really significant and have strategic implications for us. And I'm not talking about we overshoot the target in a drone operation and we put the hellfire 35 meters to the north and we take out a structure. I'm going, sir, this could be much more significant if we're not careful. If time is an important resource in conducting a cyber operation, what other resources and assets go into building an operation? Well, I was going to say back on this other question, I think there was a time period, and I think a little of this continues, where cyber was really perceived as kind of like magic pixie dust. So we're going to like plan what we normally do, and then we're going to like sprinkle some cool cyber stuff on it. <laughs> and I mean, this is part of this is because I think the way people understood cyber initially was just 
kind of incorrect. And there was, you know, this early vignette of the Israelis, like taking out the surface to air missile capabilities with cyber, and that allowed them to drop bombs without the radars even turning on. And like, as people have gone back and looked at that case, it's like, well, actually, this is probably more like jamming is probably like not a cyber thing. But I think that vignette and that like real belief that we were going to be able to use cyber as this magic pixie dust, I think it informed a lot of the early thinking. And then people got disappointed when they realized it wasn't magic pixie dust and that you would have to spend time and resources to gain accesses and that persistent accesses, things that would come, for instance, like, I mean, the most like the golden access would be, you know, an access inside a hard hardware, right? That would take years, you know? And so, whereas other types of accesses would not take years, but none of these accesses are simple buttons, right? You're trying to find an access, and especially if it's a really lucrative access that leads to a lot of different types of access to data or access to infrastructure, it does take time and coordination. And I think that then people were like, oh, well, I thought this was magic pixie dust. This is not magic pixie dust. Well, I don't need to use it then. Like, I'll just go back and drop a JDAM on it. Like, I know exactly how to plan that. I know exactly what the uncertainty term is of that. And I kind of know how people are going to respond to it because we've been doing it for a really long time. And then you kind of lost this utility. I do think that that conversation is becoming more mature. And a lot of it because of the efforts that Amal Rogers took in his time. And there was a really big debate about whether finding accesses prior to using them was going to lead to escalation. And the authorities for even getting an understanding of where there might be vulnerabilities and accesses could be was tightly, tightly held. And he had to make an argument to many different people that, guys, this is not the same thing as attacking somebody. It's not going to be necessarily escalatory. And it led to actually a lot of research, this public discussion led to a lot of research on the academic side about, okay, well, when do cyber operations lead to escalation? And and what operations can states conduct without worrying that this is going to lead to nuclear war? That sounds like that's something that's very hard to test. (laughs) Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. This is not nuclear war. So in the nuclear realm, like you really can't test a lot of the escalation dynamics because thank God it hasn't happened. But in cyber operations, you actually have these operations occurring all the time. We have a huge amounts of data. So we are actually able to do a lot more empirical analysis of the impact of cyber operations on escalation than we were ever able to do or ever should be able to do when it comes to the nuclear domain. So I actually think we know a lot more about how humans interact and behave and respond to cyber operations than we ever did about nuclear weapons. Yeah, I would really footstop what Jackie just said. I mean, the analogy I used to use was because we would get into these really rigmaroles about does just accessing a network for cyber command, does that somehow represent escalation or risk to a level where authority for that must be controlled at the secretary or presidential level, which really used to frost me because my attitude would be, do you know the authority I have as the director of the National Security Agency with respect to networks around the world? Nobody, and I mean nobody, requires me to get approvals for us to do network penetration for intelligence work. Why is there that that apprehension, Mike? Why do you think that people see it so differently? Is it just comfort with SIGINT? It's the fact that, look, number one, most people don't understand the ins and outs of SIGINT. I, I was a signals intelligence officer for 32 years. Most people don't understand the in and outs of it, number one. Number two, we've been doing it for so long, and it was such a specialized area, and we had been able to do it without significant risk. I think their view was, well, there's a precedence, there's a set of established procedures. Hey, that's fine. And my attitude always was, what makes you think that's not transferable or not applicable to traditional military operations? I think the public discourse has not helped either. I mean, if you look at a lot of Sanger's articles, they really like connotate. So, oh, there was, we found, you know, Chinese in this network, they're going to shut down all of these electrical grids. And there was a report in like 2016, just as like the persistent engagement and the cyber command vision was coming out that was like, hey, look, 
the U.S. is implanting malware in Russian electric grids, and now the Russians are threatening nuclear war. And it was like this very, very like high, high stress, high tension article. And then all of us academics were looking at this and like, mm, like we don't have any indications that this kind of escalation has ever happened. And then some academics really believe this escalation could happen. So what I did is I developed a bunch of war games to put people in like the scariest situation possible. And okay, now we're in this worst case scenario: is cyber operations going to lead to nuclear? Clear war and no, like not in the ways in which that we were so scared. And we can talk about this more, but there are kind of implications for inadvertent escalation and accidents. But it's not the kind of deliberate fear creating that we were really worried about in those those early years, and that I still think that like gets worried about in public discourse. This is actually one of my findings. Cognitively, people don't respond rationally to cyber incidents. They underplay their vulnerability. So they don't respond to cyber. They have anxiety, but they don't have fear. And this is great for escalation because it means that you don't get these kind of deliberate incentives. So I'd like to take what what Jackie said about some of her, her research and some of these findings about how individuals interact with understanding escalation and fear, anxiety about cyber to something Mike said earlier about the use of cyber capabilities in fighting the Islamic State. And I'd like to use that to shift to talking about task force Aries as, I don't know if you would describe it as almost a proving ground of how all these capabilities can come together in a venue that might have been more comfortable for many in the national security community. Mike, can you introduce us to what that concept was and how that established some of the ways that we engage in cyberspace today? Sure. So, and as I said, in December of 2015, literally a few days before Christmas, when I get told, Mike, you got 30 days to show what Cyber Command can do using cyber in the fight against ISIS. One of the things I said was, okay, I can do a series of very narrow, very quick things that will will not achieve the outcomes that you want, quite frankly. I said, but if we're really going to do this for real, we need to spend time thinking about, so how would we execute this? What's the command and control? What's the operational framework we're going to use? And when I went back out to Fort Meade and sat down with the team at Cyber Command, I said, guys, what do we do in the department when we're trying to bring together a disparate set of capabilities and organizations for a sustained fight with the defined particular target or area. And in our case, it was the target was defined, not the, not the area. And I said, you know, guys, we create joint task forces. That's how we fight. That's how we maneuver. That's how we execute command control at this level, given this time dimension of sustained effort. This isn't something we're going to do for three months and declare victory. And it's not something that I thought just one service or one component could do. And so I I talked to the team about we need to create a joint task force that brings together the different capabilities of cyber within our components, as well as it gives us a command control structure that we can use to coordinate with the kinetic fight that's ongoing, because guys, we got to synchronize what we're doing. So with the JTF that was in Iraq, as well as with CENTCOM, I said, in addition, this gives us a mechanism to tie in our allies, particularly in this scenario, the Australians and the Brits. And then it also gives us the ability to create a deconfliction and coordination mechanism with the intelligence community, because we have to acknowledge we're going to be maneuvering and we're going to be executing execute operations in the same battle space that the intel world does. And the team came back to me and said, hey, JTF, we think we agree, sir, is the way to go. And we want to call it JTF Aries, the God of War. And I'll be the first to admit, I felt personally, and I said this to then Lieutenant General Nakasone, who I had selected to command it. I said, Paul, we're going to use this to show this department and this government just what we can do and that we can operationalize cyber in a way that we can be comfortable with. We can coordinate and deconflict. We can more readily understand and we can ensure integration with a broader set of activities out there. That's what JTF Aries is going to do. Can I say that I think that the development of task forces from Cyber Command, it's extremely innovative. And I think it sometimes gets overlooked by like all the changes in doctrine. I think that the movement to task forces is maybe the, the most revolutionary change in the way we execute cyber. But I think it has implications for how we think about organizing 
all sorts of different types of military power, especially outside of a O-plan construct, which is increasingly very few of our conflicts fit within the O-plan construct. So as a military innovation scholar, I actually think that this is a really great case study for other people to look at, is the development of task forces and what that means for operational effectiveness in this, I'll say it, gray zone. And I did not pay Jackie to say that. I want to state that for the record. I've written it before, (laughs) but nobody picks up on it. Nobody wants to talk about task force organization. What about the rest of the government? This wasn't just an effort of military power, right? Where you were integrated with other agencies and resources? Yeah, but in this case, because of the nature of the conflict and the capabilities, when it came to actual execution and broad concept of operations, that was largely driven from a military dimension, given the mission that we were given. I'm not arguing cyber writ large. I'm just saying for given that particular mission, because remember, it was a DOD-driven mission. This wasn't the interagency came to the DOD or the, you know, the White House said, hey, look, we're going to put together a coordinated strategy. This was much more within the assigned mission space to DOD. Okay, let's come up with a construct that enables us to execute cyber activities in a very tactical way, but with strategic implications. And that was interesting within the JTF Aries, we did activities from very tactical battlefield operations where we would synchronize cyber events with kinetic events occurring in the battle spaces in Iraq and Syria, or we would use cyber as one element of a strategy combined with very traditional physical, some of them activity, but very physical activities that quite frankly were designed to drive ISIS to do some particular things that facilitated or increased the probability of success with follow-on physical activities. Uh, That was one of the parts I really loved working with the commanders in Iraq and at CENTCOM. So we did things from the tactical and then we were doing things up with using JTF Aries up to the strategic, where we were trying to argue we should use this capability to degrade their informational capabilities, for example, to degrade their not notice. I didn't say totally remove or wipe out because I always said, guys, it's totally unrealistic. But can we degrade their informational activities and capabilities? Can we degrade their financial And to do that, we're going to need a much broader set of partners. So when we got to that level of activities with JTF Aries, we're spending time with the State Department. We're spending time in the White House. We're spending time with our allies. We're spending time trying to deconflict as well as gain greater intelligence insight to inform our, our, our specific targets. I want to just follow up on what you said about a tactical cyber operation. Is a tactical cyber operation one where it has tactical effects or it is implemented on the ground? And how is that different from what might be done at a higher level? For me, I define tactical as the effect is localized, the effect is very specific, and the effect tends to be shorter in duration. Okay. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily have a cyber operator out in the field doing that tactical operation. It could happen from anywhere, but it's a tactical effect. Right. With respect to cyber, again, I thought that was a really limiting factor. Do not focus on the how. Hey, are are you doing this from an operator that's actually physically in the AOR? Are you doing this using an operator who is under the operational control of the supported commander? I just thought at times, it's a little bit like supporting fires to me. I used to argue, and fortunately in the end, the department bought it, but I said, we apply supporting capabilities in tactical activities all the time without the the supported commander having direct opcon or operational control. Cyber should be no different. And yet at times we would get into these endless debates about, well, if you're going to do cyber in my AOR or in my assigned area of activity, I have to control it. And I kept saying, guys, this is not going to work. Jackie, earlier you mentioned that the Joint Task Force for Cyber was an innovative construct and it was very effective against ISIS. Now we're transitioning to great power competition. You could argue we have transitioned to great power competition while still fighting terrorism. How is this construct going to translate to the next fight? And what should we be thinking about when it comes to the differences? You know, if you look at the how the joint task force construct, especially in relation to cyber, has evolved since JTF Aries, the public discussion is about, you know, the joint task forces stand at, stood up about election security and Russia. And both of these task forces, at least before solar winds, were, were seen as very successful. And they had a timeline. And task forces that have a timeline to end 
are great because you are focused towards a goal and an effort, and then you can disband. I am concerned about how the joint task force concept ends up being implemented when we look at a great power competition that could be extremely long term. And like, and competition is is not just about you know developing the best technologies; it's also about like who can persevere in this competition the longest, right? And the concern I have with the task force model and some of our doctrines, you know, that are advocating for persistent engagement and kind of constant thinking about the adversary and constant contact is how do we figure out when we're successful? And then how do we disband? (laughs) How do we end these things? And how expensive and like how big of a suck do they become? Where, how do you break China into task forces? And then how do we determine whether we're more or less successful? And then how do we, how do we get out of this without going broke? Um, and that's my concern is that we, I just don't know. I've yet to see kind of measures of effectiveness for task forces that don't have a bit of a timeline for when they're complete. What really matters is in some ways to me, less the task force construct and a little bit more about, so what specific missions are you giving them? Because as to Jackie's point, doctrinally, joint task forces are supposed to reflect specific mission needs in which there's a requirement for a certain level of command and control. There's a desire to bring together multiple capabilities, multiple components, multiple services. And the mission is very specific and very narrowly defined. We tend not historically use JTFs for these broad, never-ending for example, why would you create a, a JTF that's tasked, your job is to lead the fight in a conflict with China or in the cri- short of conflict, but in the crisis or day-to-day competition, I would be going, eh, that's not really what a JTF is optimized to do. I think Jackie makes a very good point there. So I'll start with Jackie for this one. Again, without taking the lessons from Aries and applying them to the US-China relationship, for example, has your work found that the United States comfort level with what we're willing to do in cyberspace is different in U.S.-China relations because of how we understand that escalation environment? I mean, I think this is evolving. There was a big shift in the Trump administration to take more risk and delegate down more authorities in cyberspace. You also saw new doctrines like the Department of Defense, this idea of Defend Forward, and then Cyber Command's idea of persistent engagement. And it doesn't look like that's going to be reined in by the Biden administration. You see a lot of support for more forward-leaning. And there's a lot of question about what Defend Forward and persistent engagement are. For me, I think about this as kind of cyber operations prior to violent conflict that are attacking the adversary cyber capabilities. So you're not attacking civilian infrastructure. Instead, you know, you're attacking the resources that the PLA is using to conduct cyber operations. And I, I can see that kind of tit for tat between China and the United States continuing and escalating in the amount of tit for tat that's occurring. But I don't see a scenario, a likely scenario, where cyber operations are the instigating or galvanizing incident that then leads to violent conflict. I think one of the questions that we have, if violent conflict were to emerge, and you know, I think we imagine this conflict is something where both China and the United States is trying to mitigate escalation so that this conflict stays kind of relatively geographically confined and also you know, confined in terms of like not becoming a nuclear war. I can see cyber operations being a huge part of that conflict. And I think one of the largest question marks is whether China would consider attacking civilian infrastructure, U.S. civilian infrastructure, in the midst of that type of crisis. And I think Chinese thinking on that has evolved a lot. In 2015, it really seemed like they would do that. And they have kind of backed down some of that rhetoric since then. And then for the United States, whether the United States would do something like that. If I was in that meeting and I was able to give a recommendation, I would recommend that the U.S. restrain itself from cyber attacks against civilian infrastructure. I actually am on record saying I think that the U.S. should have a no first use policy on cyber attacks against civilian infrastructure. But you can imagine that cyber attacks are going to play a large impact on the networked types of warfare that both China and the United States are increasingly dependent on. Yeah. So again, I'd be careful about the way we're using the word attack, because that can mean a whole lot of different things. And remember, the whole idea behind defending forward and persistent engagement was not just about attacks or attempts to impede or deny 
or disrupt opponent cyber activity. It also talked about, you know, because we we promulgated this before I left. We talked about the idea that this was designed to help us. How can we generate more understanding? How can we generate and perhaps influence? And how could we use, you know, activities in cyber short of conflict as potential components of deterrence? And that's really what those things were designed, were part of the argument that we made. I, I do agree with Jackie. Look, and I was part of those. In fact, the last PC principals meeting I attended in the White House with Secretary Mattis and I, we made the argument it was adopted. We have got to fundamentally change you know, our NPD 13 approach to how we're using cyber. And so you saw the Trump administration to Jackie's point, was both more comfortable delegating authority within cyber, but also was more comfortable in executing activities. And not just offensive activities, if you will. They were more comfortable executing it. As the Biden team takes over, rather than reverting back to the last Obama, again, I was part of both the Obama and the Trump team. I agree with Jackie. My sense is, because I know them all, we all worked together during the Obama timeframe. I don't sense a desire to go back to the way things were in the second Obama administration. But I do think, to Jackie's point, there is a broad consensus within this team that we really need to think about, while we acknowledge offensive use of cyber may be appropriate in some scenarios, we need to be very measured and we need to be very specific and we need to think really long and hard before we start going after civilian-associated infrastructure. What I think is going to be interesting as I look forward is, so what is the international consensus on all of this? At the moment, it's a lot of individual nations with views, and we haven't yet been able to develop the norms of behavior, the the kind of unwritten what's acceptable and not acceptable that we have been able to do in the kinetic world. We haven't really gotten there yet in cyber. And I wonder, is the focus of the near term, hey, how can we start to address that? So you raise international norms and the UN has attempted to to establish some international norms, but our main adversaries, particularly Russia and China, aren't really known for respecting those norms. And that can really have an impact on how the U.S. views deterrence. And is deterrence even possible when we talk about what Russia and China are willing to do in this arena? Yeah. Well, hey, Jackie, I tee up what you guys talked about in Solarium and the Solarium Commission. Well, I actually had a difference of opinion on how the deterrence piece got written up in the Solarium Commission. <laughs> and now we get the inside scoop. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of, I think, layered deterrence is what they came up with. Um, I will say for me, I think that cyber deterrence works at the strategic level. I think that we are able to successfully deter adversaries like Russia and China to not conduct high strategic cyber attacks, attacks against civilian infrastructure with large-scale effects, for example. I think we can probably even, if we focus on it, maybe deter attacks on, on nuclear systems. I do not think deterrence is effective below that. So I think there is a role for deterrence. It's at the strategic level. And at the low level, the deterrence is, is generally not very effective in this domain. What's considered low level? I think most stuff in deterrence is not deterrable. (laughs) Now, there are like two types of deterrence, deterrence by punish and deterrence by denial. And in general, investments in denial, um, which are generally kind of defensive measures that make it more costly for actors to conduct nefarious actions in cyberspace. Those are always useful. They're never going to be 100% successful, but they're boring. You know, it's like (laughs) investing in resiliency and redundancy and two-factor authentication. And here you heard it. Jackie believes deterrence is boring. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I'm just saying a lot of people don't want to hear the answer is these really boring kind of security things, you know? I think people want the more the fun and the excitement of deterrence by punishment, but I think that only works at the very highest level for cyberspace. Hey, the way I would phrase it is, look, do I believe that there are some aspects of deterrence that are applicable within the cyber arena? Yes. On the other hand, I, I keep hearing people want to take the nuclear deterrence concepts and argue that they work in cyber. And I'm going, guys, it's not a direct translation. There's some fundamental differences in the cyber arena. We also need to differentiate between deterring attacks and deterring activity. You know, take a look at the power grid, for example. 
nation states conducting reconnaissance, penetrating the power grid with a view to try to understand it so that they might potentially, in the event of a conflict, place it at risk is a very different deterrent question than can you deter adversaries from actually engaging in activities that degrade, deny, or destroy our electrical infrastructure? They're not the same thing to me. And I think the latter we can, the former gets to be really difficult. And you certainly see that's the way the Chinese and the Russians think. You can tell that's the way they view this. They don't see that as escalatory behavior because their view, their argument kind of internally is, well, we're not really denying it or degrading it or disrupting it. But one of the things about norms that was interesting was we tried to make a, we, the U.S., at times we tried to make part of the norms discussion, are there types of targets as well as types of activity that should be beyond acceptable, that should be viewed as abnormal and therefore not within the acceptable range of activities within cyber. We never really defined it well. And I thought the other challenge with norms was, my argument always was, guys, start simple, start small. And yet I would be part of these interagency processes at times. They wanted to come down with the, here. here's the, you know, 50 things that we want to make as norms. And I'm going, we're never going to get a consensus among 200 plus nations to 50 different things. Could we start small and build over time? I always thought that was a much smarter approach. Let's move to implications. Jackie, what do you think are the implications for the policymakers and the practitioners? And Mike, opposite, what are the implications for the academic and scholarly research communities? Can I just say that what I hope that we don't spend the next four years talking about, it's cyber deterrence. I think that that is well-trod. And I think if practitioners could just stop focusing on deterrence, that would just be a lovely, we can move forward. You know, the reality is something that we haven't talked about in this conversation at all, is that what scholarly work finds time and time again is that the impact of cyber operations is on private sector, it's on degradations of trust, it's on effects on the economy. And I think the Biden administration is well aware of this, and they're um, moving towards, you know, making movements on ransomware, but this kind of really complicated relationship between proxy actors and uh, mercenaries and criminal gangs and the relationship with the state, with Russia, with China, how many of these things are sanctioned versus not sanctioned. And then what are the foreign policy tools that you have and the military power tools that you have to deal with these types of actors and operations that are kind of intentionally created to obfuscate who is really behind them, or to slow down or to keep the United States from having a concerted approach. So I think the more we can look at kind of those really nuanced relationships between the state actors and the non-state actors and then what kind of foreign policy tools that we can use, I think that's kind of an enduring problem. And for me, again, focused on, so Mike, what would you say to the academic world? Um, Look, I understand Jackie's frustration on the deterrent side, but I still always used to tell my academic and I tried to work this within Cyber Command. You know, we brought on board a scholar in residence. I said, guys, there's a conceptual and academic piece to this that we want to help be a part of and help foster because there's so many brains out there that we should be taking advantage of. I still think the academic world can help us build a conceptual framework for deterrence that is understood. I'll be honest. Most people find it so nebulous right now. I'd love us to get down to a much more practical piece of it. Number two, I always liked academics' views on organizational constructs. The reason I say that is, look, the greatest change in my, arguably in my 37 years, was a change that was imposed upon the department by the outside in the form of Goldwater Nichols. And I I actually had combat time in my record in the pre-Goldwater Nichols days in Grenada and Beirut. And My takeaway from Grenada is this is a cluster. So I really like outsiders at times taking a look at organizational constructs in command and control, because I think at times they're less biased and they're not as influenced by history. And I find that really refreshing at times. And then lastly, what can the academic world do to help the government, not just the military, but the government? How do we work our way through this public-private set of challenges? Because the majority of this domain is in the private sector, not in the public sector. The majority of the targets 
are in the private sector, not the public sector. And the majority of the infrastructure through which we execute activities is in the private domain, not the public domain. So trying to understand how we make this work a little bit easier and how we acknowledge that, look, we just cannot afford a wall where we say, hey, on one side, the government's going to do its thing. On the other side, the private sector is going to do its thing vis-a-vis cyber. I just don't think that really gets us where we need to be. See, he waits till the end to say the organizational politics because we, we could do a whole nother discussion where we just ask about like how it feels to be dual-headed running Cyber Command <laughs> and NSA. <laughs> so one last rapid fire question. Yep. This is a pervasive domain and pervasive type of interaction between the United States and everyone else. So uh, for this particular question, topic, I'd ask you both, what keeps you up at night when you think about the threats that the United States faces in cyber? Uh, let's see. Number one, it's it's much less to me something that fundamentally keeps you awake in the sense that, for example, I used to hear the some of my bosses used to use the Pearl Harbor analogy all the time, which I, I just didn't like at all. I thought, look, guys, our challenge is not the bolt out of the blue here. Our, our challenge is look at all this activity think about what its implications are instead of, well, I'm waiting for the next bolt out of the blue that really causes significant harm and pain. And that is not the best framework for us to be thinking how we're going to work through these challenges. But the short answer for me is what keeps me awake at night? Nothing keeps me awake, but I really worry that we are not optimized between government and the private sector. And I'm not blaming either side here, but we are not optimized for the realities of this world of cyber. I think for me, it's kind of the how we've moved to more and more dependence on AI and like highly, highly digital dependence. And I worry about how cyber attacks can decrease our confidence and our trust. I, you know, as we move to kind of more and more new digital currencies and digital, you look at kind of the way information has influenced U.S. governance and how we trust our democratic institutions in that. I worry about that a lot. And I worry that democracies are maybe more vulnerable to future threats than other countries. And I don't have a solution for those things. And so that those are the things that bother me. Well, that's all we have time for today. Admiral Mike Rogers, Dr. Jackie Schneider, thank you so much for being here today. This was really great. And I would only add, thank you very much. Jackie, Is always a pleasure. I saw how good you were when you were at Cyber Command. It's great to see that you continue to serve the nation, both from an academic perspective, but also in your role as a reserve officer, you know, in the Air Force. Thanks so much for what you do every day. And thank you, Shauna and Abigail, for putting this together and giving me an opportunity. It's, it is a rare opportunity. See, I think, Emma Rogers, you were there. You led Cyber Command through an extraordinarily historic time. And so it is a real honor to get to hear exactly what was going on as you were making these decisions. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to episode 40 of the Irregular Warfare podcast. We release a new episode every two weeks. In our next episode, Laura and Andy discuss organizational change for Irregular Warfare forces with retired General John Allen, former commander of NATO International Security Assistance Force, and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Joined by Simon Akam, author of Changing of the Guard, the British Army since 9-11. Following this, Andy and Kyle discuss coalitions in irregular warfare with a focus on the U.S. and Australian perspectives with ambassadors Doug Lute and Duncan Lewis. Please be sure to subscribe to the Irregular Warfare podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow and engage with us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this discussion, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. One last note, what you hear in this episode are the views and positions of the participants and do not represent those of West Point or any other agency of the United States government. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.